He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. <laughs> Hello, I'm Melody Thomas. Welcome to episode two of season three of Bang. Now, usually the theme of an episode is pretty clear, but this time it's a bit of a mixed bag. Let me explain. I get a lot of messages from you. Sometimes you even come up to me on the street or in a bar, which I love. Don't stop doing that. In this episode, we're going to take some of those conversations and share them with everyone else. So, no theme. It's kind of all about you. First up, we're going to hear about a condition that causes a wall to appear in a vagina. (laughs) Where did it come from? (laughs) The Trump building. Another one which, if you have a penis, is likely to affect you at some point in your life. Ah. Okay, always thought this might happen, here we go. And a completely normal thing that happens to a huge part of the population that we're still really weird about. Periods. I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You must think this is disgusting. As per usual, we're going to be talking about things that some listeners might find confronting and which are probably not appropriate for younger children. Plus, as I mentioned in passing, we're going to be talking about periods and sexual intimacy during menstruation. So if you're squeamish, this is your heads up. The names used in the first two interviews have also been changed. And a quick content warning, sexual assault is mentioned in the first interview. So many of the things that we deal with in Bang are things we know exist even if we don't really talk about them. But sometimes someone comes in to share something we had no idea even existed. Now for me, and I imagine for a few of you, this is one of those ones. Hi, my name is Anna and I'm a 35-year-old female. Uh, I live in Auckland on the North Shore. My sexual orientation is very uh, fluid. I guess bisexual or pansexual is probably the closest term. But that's not what you're here to talk about. No. (laughs) Should we dive straight into naming this thing? Um, So I have something called vaginismus. Those of you with keen ears might realise at this point that actually vaginismus has come up before. It was one of the audience advice questions at our Auckland live show. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. But because those questions are submitted anonymously, I didn't get a chance to do a follow-up interview. If you missed that or you've forgotten what it is, here's Anna to explain. It's basically a tightening of the um, muscles of the wall of the vagina. And um, this happens when something tries to penetrate the vagina. They say it's an automatic reflex, so it's kind of like, um, you know, how you close your eye if somebody tries to stick something in your eye. Um, It's the same sort of reflex, but it happens with the muscles um, in the wall of the vagina. So this tightening or spasming that Anna's describing can be frustrating and a bit uncomfortable, or it can be incredibly painful. It's sometimes described by people who experience it as a tearing or a burning sensation. And in severe cases, the muscles contract so much that any type of penetration, even inserting a tampon, is impossible. Also, just quickly, a spot of technical speak. There's primary vaginismus, which is when a person has never been able to enjoy pain-free penetration of any kind, and secondary vaginismus, when someone's sex life has been just fine and then this appears as if out of nowhere, which is what happened to Anna. 
in my teenage years, I had a couple of partners and in my early 20s as well. And you know, I'd say I really enjoyed sexual intercourse with, with penetration at that point in my life. And I didn't really give it a second thought. <laughs> there was kind of a, a break where I was not with a partner. And yeah, during that time, I was also sexually assaulted. And yeah, when I found my next partner, um, who was a person who had a penis, you know, the penetration didn't didn't work. And it is, you know, described as hitting a wall. And I think mm. um, I can relate to that. There was just, there was just no movement there. It was not, not going any, in any which way. And although that wasn't painful, just the awkwardness of trying to go through that in sex and trying different positions and then trying to have sex several times and it not working and, and me not having any idea that you know, there was this thing called vaginismus. Um, and having and, previously and, been able to have penetrative sex, yeah? Yeah, and so I had put it down to we're not a compatible pair, you know, and I broke off my relationship with this partner because the sex wasn't working. I guess, of course, you would think incompatibility because one other option is there. Like, well, there's yeah. a wall in your vagina all of a sudden. We don't hear much about walls appearing in vaginas. It's like... <laughs> Where did it come from? <laughs> yeah. Did Trump build it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, get out of my vagina, Trump. <laughs> so one of the things that characterises vaginismus is the absence of other conditions that might lead to pain. So a gentle examination will reveal a vagina where everything looks normal. But this also means that a doctor who doesn't know about vaginismus, and they exist, might totally miss it because everything looks fine. And that's what happened to Anna during a routine pap smear. I was in a lot of pain and mm. swearing a lot at the doctor, um, who I don't think the doctor realised what vaginismus was. And she continued the procedure as normal. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was like, this doctor does not know what she's doing. I'm not going to go back and see her again. Also because she didn't take my pain seriously, you know, that yeah. was another thing. But I had a cervical polyp that required surgery for removal. So at that point I had to go and see a gynaecologist and... She also did an initial examination, and, and during that examination, I was again in a lot of pain and uh, screaming. And she was kind of like, "Okay, um, let's sit down and have a conversation," sort of thing. And and she asked me about my sexual history, and I brought up about the sexual assault and mm. um, the fact that I wasn't able to have sex with penetration. Then she said, you know, have you heard of vaginismus, which I hadn't. But that was pretty much the end of the conversation <laughs> around that. She said to me, um, you know, if you ever think about having children, use an epidural. <laughs> and, what? And, <laughs> yeah. We didn't, we didn't continue the conversation much further So she's that. like, so that here's this big long word. Yeah. This is what you are. See you later. Yeah. I guess I was mostly just really shocked that I had no idea this could happen to my body and why aren't people talking about this? And, um, you know, there is treatment for it. And where are the people who are letting me know about the treatment or guiding me through? Or what, what about the other um, people with vaginas who are experiencing the same problem and don't know about it? Have you talked about this with people in your life? Um, I've talked about it with close friends, mostly because I was really interested to know if anybody else had heard about it. I mean, people hadn't. None of my friends had. And, you know, one of my friends came back to me later on. She was like, you know, I, I think I experienced the same thing. And we didn't talk about it at, at length. But I just, yeah, I mean, I found it really interesting that she had also um, had troubles with sexual intercourse and had no name to put to it. She couldn't understand what was happening. 
you know, as, as soon as I have a name for it, it means that I can work on it. And if you don't have a name for it, you don't even know where to start. If you've got to describe what you're experiencing, how do you describe, like, we tried to have sex but couldn't? Like, can you explain that in more detail? But if you just go and be like, I have this thing called vaginismus, that's much easier, in my opinion, to, to then go and uh, ask for help with that. So after you got that word and that felt like, you know, it was a correct kind of diagnosis, what, what from there? Uh, yeah, well, for me, I haven't I haven't followed that um, up with anything. I was very lucky to be dating someone at the time who was really understanding and was okay with uh, experiencing sex in different sorts of ways. But yeah, for other people that are experiencing, there is treatment. You can have physio, and they give you vaginal dilators, as I understand it, um, which is basically uh, like dildos in increasing size, slowly to... stretch out the muscles. <laughs> yeah, mm. <laughs> there's a lot of hurdles to overcome I suppose. I don't know that I would feel comfortable speaking to my GP about it especially after my last experience with the pap smear. And, and since that you haven't tried to be intimate with someone with a with a penis or where penetration would be involved in sex? Yeah I've avoided penetration since then so mm. which, which <laughs> puts is... an end to some adventures. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's it's lucky that you do have this other avenue to explore but but mm. yeah no that's. But, you know it would have been nice to try strap-ons as well but like... <laughs> It's time to get out of here and now you're dropping strap-ons. That's Sorry. really unfair for you to do that. It's intentional. Thank you so much, Anna, for sharing so openly. Now, some of you are going to have questions about treatment and how common this is, and we're going to get our father-daughter sex advice duo, Nick and Lena Bateson, to answer them. In case you've forgotten, Nick is a clinical psychologist and sex therapist. He's based in Auckland, and his daughter Lena is studying in Wellington with plans to be a sex educator. And you probably remember how cute they are. Hey, gorgeous. Hey. <laughs> We've already chatted in the car, so. Do you do that every morning? Oh, every morning, no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick's wife and Lena's mum, Verity, is also a sex therapist. We won't get into that now. She's not joining us, but she does come up in the interview. So let's get straight into it. How common is vaginismus? I mean, the first thing is that there isn't, you know, good epidemiological data. In a couple of studies, about 15 to 18% of women will experience dyspareunia or, or pain on intercourse or that kind of thing. But vaginismus, there isn't good data. There's one study that was done in Morocco and Sweden, talked about 6% of the population. It's 1 in 20. That's a lot of people. Mm. It's a lot of people for being someone who has a vagina and has never heard of it. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of shame around it. I mean, I don't know how much you can talk about patients and things, Nick, but is this something you've encountered a bit? Yes, absolutely. something I have encountered. I have to say I have consulted with my in-house consultant, (laughs) um, my wife and Lena's mother, because she does a lot more of that work than I do. Because for obvious reasons, women tend to prefer to work with a female sex therapist around us. Mm. And is this something your friends have talked to you about or you've encountered anecdotally? Not really, to be honest. Um, Definitely discomfort and pain but not to the point of nothing can go in Mm. like Mm -hmm. you know often probably just a lack of foreplay and a lack of arousal so that's a kind of different whole thing although sadly that is often how it starts i mean there can be all sorts of causes for what we're calling you know secondary vaginismus or vaginismus that happens later in somebody's sexual development but the probably the most common is 
having sex when they're not ready, not aroused, not lubricated, and it being painful, and then they start to build up a negative anticipation towards sex, it becomes increasingly painful because they're getting, you know, less, finding it harder and harder to get aroused, and you get the whole cycle going. Yeah, it's like a loop, and yeah. and and you're anxious because you think it's going to hurt, and then it hurts, and that increases the anxiety, and yeah. so on. And, and, eventually, so forth. Your, yeah. and eventually your body goes, oh, I don't want to do this. You do need to check that there aren't medical causes for the pain, right? Because infections, uh, even thrush, those kinds of things, that can be that can be the source of the pain. So that usually needs to be checked out. And unfortunately, what can happen is that some doctors will get very focused on trying to find a medical cause and treat it. So it's really important that you go to a doctor who is focused on your general sexual well-being. So uh, sexual health specialists, not just somebody who is focused, say, on dermatology or something. So Anna mentioned these things called vaginal dilators earlier, and this was something she was keen to know more about because she couldn't get her head around how they might work. But I can play you actually what she said. All I have to do is stick a thing inside me. How does that teach my muscles? I have doubt in my mind about whether that works. I think when people look at that, they think, oh, it's just going to force, you know, force me open wider and wider, and that's not how it works. I mean, uh, dilators are a tool that pelvic floor physios use uh, sometimes they don't always use them, and it's much more about you know the physio teaching you to to be uh, able to be aware of and in control of those muscles, which you can you can learn to do. And so the the other piece of it is then the psychological part, and it certainly does not have to originate in trauma. That is one cause, and you know Anna thinks that's a case for her, but it can come from all sorts of things, including non-sexual assaults. In childhood, uh, and also including just a culture of of fear or negativity around sex. That's incredible to me that the body can go to such lengths to protect you. Yeah, well, I, if you've been suppressing a connection and feeling since you can remember, that is not going to be undone the first time you're trying to be sexy with another human. Yeah. In Anna's to- story, she talked about going to a GP who, from the sounds of things, could have quite easily also reinforced this anxiety pain loop. I don't know. I don't know what the question is there, if it, if it is for like, how do we empower GPs or if it is how do we empower the people who are in those situations to be like, actually, you need to take my pain seriously. Well, I think both need to happen. Yeah. I mean, sadly, it is the case that many medical professionals are uncomfortable with sex, including gynecologists and neurologists. So you have to be careful in the choice of your health professionals. And if they're not listening to you, then unfortunately you do have to be really assertive, which is hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard in any situation of like being no. No, this hurts. Stop. Mm. It feels very unnatural to me and lots of other people. You know, there's this culture around things maybe supposed to be hurting a little bit. So, yeah, it's, uh, I would describe learning to be assertive in that way as a muscle. So just try. Particularly when it's the first time, uh, you know, there's going to be nerves, there's going to be tension. And hopefully, you know, you know your own body and your own responses well enough through self-pleasuring that you kind of know when you're aroused and just not, not pushing, uh, pushing past that if you're not. And I think the big thing is having some really explicit conversations that you can say no, you can say slow down and verbalising those things before you start so that any nerves can be addressed in the heat of the moment rather than you suppressing them because you don't think it's sexy or appropriate or that they won't want to hear them. 
If some of this stuff has been ringing bells for you and you think maybe vaginismus is something you need help with, we have some links on the webpage. You just search out this episode at rnz.co.nz and it's all there. Now, vaginismus can place a big strain on relationships. Sometimes they can go unconsummated and then resentment and frustration can build to boiling point. But being single with vaginismus isn't exactly straightforward either, as Anna points out. I have to say I am a bit hesitant to get into a new relationship now that I've got this knowledge in my head. It's like I don't feel like my relationship can just progress on a natural sort of path. There has to be like, let's stop and have this conversation. And how much pressure there could be from the partner to to be involved in penetration. So I think I would almost avoid the conversation altogether. Um, But yeah, there comes a point where you can't avoid it, right? So... If there's somebody listening who either has a partner who experiences this or, you know, may at some point end up in a situation where the person that they are getting involved with says, hey, I've got something to tell you and, you know, says I have vaginismus or I encounter this kind of pain, what advice would you have in terms of the reaction and how to best support someone who's just opened up in that way? Yeah, I mean, I guess my suggestion is still not to put pressure on anyone to have sex that involves penetration and uh, almost take it as an opportunity to try and explore being intimate in other ways because there are there are plenty of other ways you can en- enjoy your body or other people's bodies without having to rely on the traditional way we're taught to have sexual intercourse. And this no pressure thing is really important with vaginismus. Here's Lena. Because if you're trying to break an almost automatic cycle, any hint at them wanting what you know causes you pain especially if you're a sensitive person, you pick up on that and and they actually do really need to, you know, be aware and take a bit of responsibility and do actually be quite careful because it's really unhelpful. Yeah, in fact, it sounds like that kind of that kind of response could would easily make it worse. Mm. Last season, a friend of mine came in to talk about premature ejaculation. And afterwards, a bunch of people got in touch to say that they'd loved hearing someone talking about it so openly and with a sense of humour. A few of those people also asked if we might give another common ailment the same treatment. Erectile dysfunction. Problems with getting or maintaining an erection. My name is John and I am 39 I am based in Wellington. So John got in touch over Twitter after I asked whether anyone might be brave enough to come in and talk about erectile dysfunction. We're going to call it ED from here. And I liked his reply because it felt like he wasn't all tied up in knots about it. I actually get the feeling that John views most things in his life with a sense of humour. Listen quickly to how he answers my question about what he had for lunch, which, here's some podcast insider info, is something we do at the start of interviews to check mic levels. For lunch today, I had McDonald's seasonally available pork sandwich, the McRib. I love that you even put in seasonally available. It's not available every day. It's dependent on global pork futures. So when it comes, you're like, I'm getting that. Jump on that shit. Had it (laughs) yesterday, have it today, probably have it tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, John. Okay, so here's how we're going to do this. John's going to tell us about his ED, and then Nick and Lena Bates are going to come back in and talk about how common it is and the ways to deal with and talk about it. But before John starts, it's probably good for you to know that ED is not a disease. It's a symptom of another problem. And sometimes that other problem is physiological, like, say, heart issues. And sometimes it's psychological. For John, it was the latter. Here he is explaining. A few years ago, I became involved in a 
I hate this word, but I suppose it's the right technical word, a polyamorous relationship with a married woman. It was a very sexually focused sort of relationship. We met up on Tinder and got together for the purposes of doing sex and having nice chats before and after. Um, but sex was very much the focus. If that wasn't there, we wouldn't be there. And for a while, I would have other relationships outside of that relationship, as would she with her husband and with other partners. But the further into it and the more intense it got, there became pretty strong elements of control and manipulation. And I'm really hesitant to use this word, but when I talk to friends about how things were progressing, they would say, what you're in is a relationship with an abusive dynamic. Mm. And when I started to realise that this was, you know, as I say, a situation that was really in need of addressing, was when my girlfriend would be with her husband or with her girlfriend or with one of her other men that she would see, and so I would be free to do as I pleased, but if I would spend the evening with any other women, I would find that I couldn't perform. It was something of a, huh, okay, yep, always thought this might happen, here we go. Always thought this might happen because at a certain age it starts to happen. Yeah, yeah. and because men just, you know, always bandy around, oh, well, if you're doing sex, sometimes either things will happen too soon or they won't happen at all and that'll be too bad, won't it now, mate? That's girl talk, <laughs> male style. Right, okay. For John, ED was a result of a really unhealthy relationship, but as he said, he was kind of expecting it to turn up. After all, this is super common. Nick's going to tell us later that if you have a penis, you can pretty much expect this to happen to you at some time. But what I admire about John is that he didn't see it as the shattering or humiliating or emasculating event like it's often portrayed in the movies. What's ED? I don't... Um, erectile dysfunction, uh-huh. my darling. And yeah. it's if think about it as if you're trying to throw darts and you just you, all you really got, you're shooting with like overcooked spaghetti. This never happens. I'm aware. I'm, I'm serious. It doesn't. No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. It's me. I'm a jinx. If you have a problem with erectile dysfunction, I can help you with that. A lot of men have it. Not me, of course. I'm a very virile man. Me neither. Very severe. virile. I always grew up before I had had any experience of sex, feeling like, oh, those are the big things to be scared of. But now that I'm the ripe old age of 39, I've been through some of those experiences and mainly just found them a bit sort of funny and the sorts of things that any kind of bedroom MacGyver can work around. Did you make that up? Right here, right now in the room with you, Melody. What do you see as having been protective for you? Like, obviously, this wasn't gutting for Mm -hmm. you. You were able to see it with a bit of a sense of humour. So what do you see as the kind of protective factors? Uh, My parents split up when I was young and I was raised by my mother and women in her orbit, and I was always encouraged to question what ideas of masculinity I was taking in and taking on for myself. That happened, but I was also sent to an all-boys school where everything you did, you were a filthy gay, and there were very strong ideas about what a man was and what you wanted to be, but I came away from that just feeling like, well, if that's what a man is, I don't really want any part of it. When I found myself unable to do the stereotypical 
straight man action of vaginal penetration, I didn't feel like, oh, my sexual life is over. Another reason I didn't take it too strongly to heart was that giving head is one of my favourite things. And so I would just figure, okay, well, I can do this for a while and she'll be happy and I'm sure I'm happy. And the question might come up at some point, is this going to go any further? (laughs) And I would just try to, you know, get the situation to a point where my apology was favourably received. And if you haven't personally experienced something like this, but like you, you've, you know, joked with the lads about it, about this and how one day it's probably going to happen to you, then it might not be a bad idea to work on having other things in your MacGyver toolbox. If your idea of sex is I get naked with someone and I get hard and I put my dick in them and that's the end of the game, then, brother, you're not very good at sex anyway. (laughs) So I'm wondering, I guess, because there will be men out there for whom this is a bigger this is a bigger thing and it is mm. something that causes them great anxiety and I also know that that anxiety can make the problem worse. So I guess, do you have any advice? I think that if sex doesn't make you laugh, you're doing it wrong. You know, there's lots about sex that's inherently pretty ridiculous and this can be one of those things. I would also say that if you were coming into this situation and it were new and scary to you, It might be a good time in your life to hear that sex isn't a game with a score and the idea isn't if I go into this and X amount of orgasms come out of it, then I've won. That you have to be able to be playful and deal with whatever situations arise. If you're there in the moment with somebody that you trust to be there in the moment with, I do think the situation will take care of it one way or another. And if it doesn't, then be a man about it, talk about it honestly. And when you get out of there, just look at your life and say to yourself, okay, well, clearly there's some pressure bearing down on me. What do I need so that my body stops sending me these signals that I find so troubling? You know, there's a little bit of social embarrassment, but you're already naked with someone. It's already weird and embarrassing. Bedroom MacGyver, John, thank you so much. I just imagine John listening while he's eating his pork McRib sandwich. And the good news as well with John is that he's now in a healthier relationship and is finding Edie much less of a problem. So back to Nick and Lena Bates. I imagine this is one of those people, Nick, that you hear and you're like, oh, I'd be out of a job if everyone was like this. That's right. That's good. Yeah, no, I, I, he did a you know really good job, I think, of modelling a really good attitude to a very common problem. Mm. How common is this? Well, if you've got a penis, you can expect it to happen to you. Across all ages, the the incidence is about sort of, you know, different studies between 13 and 20%, right? That's a lot of people. And it, you know, obviously the older you get, the more the the chances increase. With the first stat, is that has happened to them at one point or seems to be reoccurring? That has happened to them. So. And I mean, the thing is, if you are a penis owner, then it's going to happen to you. I mean, you know, through fatigue, through uh, alcohol or other drug use, um, all sorts of things. Nerves. This is another nerves one. Absolutely nerves. Absolutely nerves. And then the other thing I do want to say is that I remember vividly going to a a conference and uh, this uh, doctor talking about the penis being the canary in the coal mine. Um, for a whole bunch of uh, medical conditions, heart conditions, uh, diabetes, a whole bunch of other stuff. 
So there are lots of reasons why you, you might have difficulty getting or maintaining an erection. But if it's happening to you consistently without, you know, it's, it's, if it's not obvious that, you know, because you had way too much to drink, then do go to your doctor and just get those things checked out. Right? Don't be embarrassed. It's normal. It happens to all of us. And it's really important you get on to because if you do have a, you know, unfortunately, if you do have a, a heart issue or, you know, a problem with diabetes, you want to get onto that quickly because that makes such a difference. Yeah, okay. Your penis is doing you a big favor by sending out a warning signal. So if you go to a doctor and they say, no, I can't see any physiological reasons that yeah. this might be happening, then what? What next? Well, if physiological things are ruled out, then um, chances are that it is uh, psychological. And what tends to happen is that if it's happened to you and you're worried about it and you, you don't have the kind of attitude that John has, then you start getting more and more nervous. And the more nervous you get, the more likely it is to happen to you. Right? And it is one of those horrible, vicious cycles that people get into. And uh, once you're going down that cycle, it can be it can be tricky to break out of that. Yeah, and this is where therapists step in, I guess, is, or is getting that kind of help. Yeah. I mean, if you if you can't do it yourself, yeah, talking absolutely. with the if you have one partner or talking to them about it, because I think if you're going through the nerves alone, 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 leading up to an interaction, and you're not talking to them about it. I think it's far more likely to keep happening if you're not even talking to the person that is having this interaction with you about it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that is daunting, but. If you're saying that in the context of, I still want to be sexual with you, there's lots of other things we can do, um, I don't think it actually has to be that daunting. Yeah. And that's a really, really wise way to talk about it because unfortunately what can happen is that partners of people who are having difficulty with their erections can take it personally. And that then makes the conversation, you know, really scary. Right, because then it's kind of like you know the hardness of your erection is proof of your love for me or yeah. your your in you know how how into me you are, and then you know the conversation becomes part of the problem, not part of the solution. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's an important thing to put out to people who sleep with people with penises is please don't take it personally and take it down that route because you know unless they're directly making comments that make you feel bad about yourself, it just adds a whole other layer of pain for you to be like, well, don't you find me attractive when they're already caught up in their own head about them feeling like their body is failing them. This reminds me of this thing that John said. It's your genitals and it's your responsibility. So if you find yourself in a situation where you can't be where you thought you wanted to be, that's really not on your partner. That's really not on you're not stimulating me right, you don't look the way I hoped you would naked, you're asking me to wear condoms and I don't like that. You know, it it is your problem to solve. Have compassion for yourself, but the buck stops with you. And that's where talking can help as well. You telling me you're attracted to me means more to me than your erection. For me personally, I might not be everyone, but you telling me that I'm gorgeous or beautiful or sexy, you know, I remember that in the context of you find me attractive more than... A really, really hard penis. I mean, I think the other thing that I think John was um, really, really good at talking about is if you don't get caught up in your own embarrassment and shame about your body not working, then you can also then demonstrate that say, look, I'm still really into you. I still really want to, you know, have sex with you. I still want to pleasure you. I still want to have fun with you, you know. And we'll just leave the penis, just leave the penis alone for a and bit. And we'll hot. do some other stuff. That's really you know, hot. I'm just that sounds right wrong now. you saying that to me, Lena. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> saying in general, like, I know. It's, <laughs> as a straight woman, I take some limitations as a gift because 
then it creates creativity and moves you beyond the formulaic bit of foreplay penetration. The man ejaculates, it finishes. Okay, so this is hopefully, again, we have trusted GPs who are open with talking about this stuff because is there a tendency to just kind of prescribe some pills and, and move on? Well, that has been the tendency, but when Viagra came on the market, they discovered that didn't work. Viagra was being prescribed, particularly with the um, older age group, and the guys were who had had erectile dysfunction maybe for years uh, were suddenly turning up with these rock-hard erections wanting to have sex, and their partners are going, what the heck is going on here? I didn't sign on for that. We, we gave up on this stuff years ago. What are you doing? And now you're just guns blazing, wanting to jump <laughs> yeah, straight back and, in the saddle, um, yeah. Yeah, so, and so this, they weren't getting repeat prescriptions, so it affected their sales. So they, they started educating GPs about have to kind of involve a conversation with partners. And I mean, this is going to happen to you if you have a penis. It, once you're in your 40s, the risk's there. Once you get into your 50s, which is where I am, um, you know, it's definitely going to be happening. So if you're at that thing where it's just you know, the ageing of the uh, hydraulic system in your penis, the drug class the, the, of which Viagra is one, they work really, really well. But it needs to be something that's talked about with your partner and because you need to take them in advance, right, of when you're going to have sexual activity. So you want to, you know, it really encourages people to talk about, hey, well, what do you think about later on tonight? Which is actually quite lovely if it's done right. That's father-daughter sex advice duo Nick and Lena Bates and we're going to come back to them one more time shortly. Okay, our final chat could be a bit challenging for some people. Not only are you about to hear three lady voices all at once. Oh, yeah. We're going to be talking about periods. <laughs> periods. periods. <laughs> That's right, periods. Good old menstruation, or more specifically, the places and spaces where periods and intimacy meet. So two listeners actually reached out to talk with me about this. One's in the studio with me in Wellington and the other's up in Auckland. Oh, this is so weird. <laughs> I'll let them introduce themselves and then we'll get straight down to it. Hi, I'm Amy, I'm 22 years old and I'm cisgendered pansexual. Hi, I'm Chessie, I'm 26 years old and I'm a straight female. Possibly a good way to start is just periods and like first memories of periods. Can we start yeah. there? Well, I, oh, go on. You go, no, you go. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I was at a primary school. This is Amy. She's actually putting on a play as part of the Fringe Festival called Period, which is about periods. Back to her. All the girls got shifted into the library, the little library, and we watched this video about Australian women going surfing, being told by guys they were going to get eaten by sharks if they went in on their periods. No. So relevant. It was really bizarre. And then afterwards, we all went off in tiny little groups and got like a pad and a tampon to look at. And then a teacher came round and told us what they're for, and it was a little weird. And then we all got shuffled back to class, and that was it. I was actually, I was at boarding school when I got my period. This is Chessie. I just remember it being just such a stressful and disturbing thing. Like, any other time, if there's blood on you or coming from you, it's like a bad thing. And mm. just, I remember just being like, oh, well, this is just awful. Like, <laughs> I knew what it was, but I was just, I just didn't want a bar of it. In either of your heads when this happened, was there part of your brain that was like, well, I guess I'm a woman now, or was it like tied in with with sex in your brains? Mm, I was 10 and we hadn't had the sex ed talk that was at like intermediate high school. But I had this book which was like moon women time or like menstruating women. And so, yeah, in my brain it was very much like, oh, I'm a woman now, yay. I think the whole thing just made me feel 
nervous, yeah. Like it, you kind of know something more is coming. I was like quite late in the day. I think I was like 13 or 14. I yeah. heard from interviews I've done with some people that at boarding school all the girls were talking about it and all the girls were like ticking off the list as like Sally and Annie and Billy yeah. or Bobby period. And like... It was definitely a bit like that. So what about um, when sex and um, falling around and first sexual experiences start to come into play? When is the first time that you remember those two things intersecting? I think it was just like having sex and then my boyfriend at the time like kind of pulling out and there just being blood, you know? I was just so not, did not lead a kind of confident charge, if you know what I mean. Like, I was just like, ah, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I just felt so sorry. And I was like, oh, this is awful. Like, you must think this is disgusting. I've had a very similar, when they pull out and there was blood on it, and I had forgot to mention that it was like I was still spotting. And he was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm bleeding. I'm I'm bleeding. (laughs) I was like, no, 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 that's probably me. I'm bleeding. What do you mean it's you? Like, I'm probably on my period still. And then took the condom off. I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) My penis isn't dying. Obviously, this is deeply personal. And some people, and this is across all genders, feel completely fine being intimate with other people when they're on their period and it's not a thing and some people just would not even want to go there. What are your feelings and have they remained constant or have they changed? Probably my first experience when sex and periods were at the same time is the idea for sex had been like offered and I was like, no, I don't want to, I'm on my period. And then the instant response was, well, your ass isn't. And I was like, whole, like, like, no, anal sex has never been a part of our repertoire. It's not something we do. Why are you offering it now? Yeah, I just said, like, I'm on my period. I'm not keen for sex. So why would I be keen for that? It was really horrible. And I was, like, angry for the rest of the day. That was probably, like, the first time it had ever come up. And it was real negative. So then I kind of just just moved everything away and was like, no, we don't do sex at period time. Mm. Did that change? Yeah, that changed when I was like, Hmm. I'm on my period, but I really feel like masturbating. <laughs> so yeah, that was when it finally came back was when I was happy to please myself while on my period. And then how do you manage that going forward when it's with somebody else? How does that? Mm. I personally don't do period sex because it's really sensitive for me in a non-pleasurable way, whereas I know some women who love period sex because it's a great stress relief, they really enjoy it, they like that it's like slippery, whereas I'm not that keen on mess and I'm not keen on having anything up there while I'm menstruating. And then we just wait a week and that's all good. Yeah. What about you, Tessie? Um, I think mine's like definitely evolved heaps like as I've got older and just been learning more about myself and sexuality and kind of getting past a lot of the hang-ups that I maybe had when I was kind of in my teens and then sort of early 20s, you know. For me, it was for ages just a real, like, I felt grossed out and kind of embarrassed about my body, you know. I don't know, I just sort of real, I'm like, God, it's amazing that my body's doing this, like, and kind of found, like, a real power in it. And it shifted my attitude so much towards my whole body, I think, weirdly. And then um, I suppose, like, just being in a relationship with someone who, you know, I'd kind of be like, oh, does this gross you out? And they'd be like, nah, actually not at all. Like, doesn't gross me out in the slightest. And kind of just actually having, like, a bit of a dialogue about it and, and having someone who was interested to be like, whoa, like, what is it like? And, mm. and yeah, I don't, I don't care at all about having sex on my period. Like, obviously there's times when you just, I'm like, I feel horrible and bloated, I don't feel like it. 
There's such a pressure to have this like clean sex where it's like you're all shaved and, and everything's really nice and you don't do anything embarrassing. <laughs> it's so cool if I'm like having kind of an intimate experience with a guy and he's just like, oh, I'm just down with your period. Like, I think that's totally sweet. Like, it's not even that I particularly want them, the guy to be like, yeah, I want to have sex with you on your period. It's more just like, do not make me feel awkward about it ever. Lena and Nick Bates are here, though Nick has done the wise thing and let Lena take the charge on this one. Now, Lena, your early experience with periods weren't really good or bad, but more kind of neutral, which as someone who still has hang-ups about it sounds like a much better option. So how do we help create more attitudes like yours? Talk about it from younger than they would get their period. Or, you know, if in your household, don't hide your cup, pads, tampons, you know. In our flat, most of us use moon cups. And I have a male flatmate, but he's just used to them sitting around. His girlfriend's been staying with us. Hers is up on the shelf as well. So I think a lot of that stuff, just normalising it before it starts and to people who won't ever get periods. So everyone's just kind of aware of what it is and it's just, yeah, it's just a part of life rather than something you need to announce or take your kid into a room and disclose the secret passage of womanhood or something. Um, Just put in a a dad's perspective here, I think it's really important that dads and uh, and uh, brothers uh, are not allowed to sort of go oh that's disgusting yeah I, I, I it's just like no it's not mm. it's natural yeah you no can't big, be like oh, i don't want to hear about it yeah obviously these things are personal and some people don't you know intimacy and menstruation are paths that don't cross i just wonder if there's any kind of self-analysis or anything that you could potentially pick apart before you decide that this is just off limit. There are some really strong um, cultural prescriptions in different cultures. So, that, you know, that's that's one thing. Is It's kind of like for some people it, it's a really important and sacred taboo, you know, and you don't go there. So, you know, there's the culture you've been brought up in and thinking about, well, is that important? And, does, is, you know, is that what I believe and is that what I want? That's one thing. I, I think I get what you mean because for me, like, I did have to work towards getting more and more comfortable. And I do think, yeah, beyond... A level of sacredness or people just being really scared of blood because you know that's quite often a phobia that is not really in someone's control yeah i do think it's good to think critically about why something is kind of grossing you out especially something so inherently natural that happens to so many people and if it is something that you just can't get past that's okay you know everyone has their boundaries The most important thing is for you, as someone who has a period, to not feel like your partner is grossed out by you or that you're suddenly now less attractive or they couldn't possibly think about being sexual with you right now. I guess if you still don't want to have sex, maybe do it in a way that is reassuring them that you're still attracted to them, but just that blood is something that is a bit of a boundary and and Mm. you can't feel comfortable with in a sexual setting. If only it was blue like the ads. No, that would be seriously creepy. <laughs> yeah, that would be, I'd feel. I mean, it'd be cool, but I'd also be like, I'm definitely an alien. I'm definitely dying. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we go, and as a way of wrapping up this, I guess, more random episode, let's just talk about talking for a second. Obviously, people who seek the podcast out feel that there's a value in talking about this kind of stuff, but inevitably when it goes on the radio or even you know, conversations that I've had with my own family, there can be reactions that are less positive and from people who think that this stuff is private and shouldn't be talked about publicly. So what do you say to that, Nick, or is it too big of a topic to even go over now? 
It's a very big topic, but the first level is that we know that from lots of research that naming feelings helps manage them. So talking feelings out loud actually helps manage them, and so they're not so much, they're not so big, they're not so out of control. So particularly around things where there's embarrassment, shame, anxiety, it helps. Yeah, for me, when you were saying that, I kind of thought about twofold, because hearing these conversations can do the first step or one step of recognising things within yourself or in your own life or things you didn't address or things you haven't acknowledged and then can come another step which is having those conversations yourself like sometimes a realisation you don't have to articulate it to anyone else but having heard a conversation you're suddenly clearer about something in yourself and from a harm prevention level these conversations are really important most of me and my female friends have only realised an interaction has been violating or harmful or or pressuring only when we talk about it with each other. Mm. And if you're not having those conversations, you could be having lifelong interactions that are causing you pain and harm, but are you, you think are um, regular. All, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two levels to what you're talking about. Melody, and what one is the the educative function of doing the podcast and things like this, which is really important. You think of Anna's story from today. I mean, she didn't know what was happening to her. It's really important that these discussions are out in the public um, domain so that people understand their own experience and if they need help, can get help. And but I also do think that um, you know what you, you said. You know, you, you're talking with your family. People say some conversations should be private, and I think that's okay. But I think if you're having sex with somebody. You're having a pretty, uh, hopefully, having a pretty intimate relationship with them. Why can't you have intimate conversations with that person? You know, if you're willing to exchange body fluids with them, why, 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 why can't you talk about it? Thank you so much, Nick and Lena. Now, they're going to be back in later episodes this season. They're also going to be joining me on stage as part of the Bang Live show in Wellington, which is in a couple of weeks. Pretty sure it's sold out, but if you get on the waiting list, I think they release a few tickets on the day, so you may just get lucky. That's it for this episode. If you have something you want to talk about or you want to hear discussed, please email me. I'm at bang at rnz.co.nz. In the next episode of Bang, we hear from couples trying their best to stay together through tough stuff. Plus, we ask the question, is monogamy natural to humans? And if not, why do we do it? Thanks so much for listening. To subscribe, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, review and rate us if you have a moment. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders. Adam McCauley provided valuable coaching in the studio, and the executive producer is Tim Watkins.